Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! All right, now we get Mr. McAdam of the award winner, and we have a chance to say hello. Sean, it's a pleasure. Long time no chat. How's my buddy? Okay, things good? I'm doing fine, Chris. How are you? A little sad day today. All right, sad day. All right, uh, let's pepper you with some thoughts, and then we'll get to some history. In your eyes, on all critical, from a critical standpoint, and you know music better than anybody, is the band a top 50 band of all time? Oh, um, unquestionably. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, and... What they achieved, they achieved largely because of Robbie Robertson, who strangely was not much of a singer. Uh, in fact, in the band's catalog, when he was involved, he took a lead vocal on exactly one song. But he was a terrific songwriter, uh, an inventive and influential guitar player, a great producer, uh, just a brilliant musical mind. And he essentially invented Chris what we now call Americana, uh, which is um, sort of a blend of folk, country, rock and roll, blues, gospel. Uh, that was a direct reaction to some of the things that were going on in the mid to late 60s. And the irony, of course, despite the fact that we now call it Americana, is that Robbie and three other bandmates in the band were all Canadian, but hugely influenced by uh, the music that they heard from America and particularly from the Deep South. All right, if they're better than top 50, are they top 25? Uh, in terms of influence, yes, I would say so. Wow. How about record sales and popularity? Uh, that's where they miss out. Uh, I think that their second album, The Band, uh, was a top five album. And other than perhaps... The soundtrack to The Last Waltz, uh, which is, I think, by almost anyone's estimation, one of the best rock documentaries of all time. Um, maybe that also cracked the top five or top ten in sales. Of course, there were many other contributors to that soundtrack, from Clapton to Neil Young to Dylan to Van Morrison to Joni Mitchell. Uh, so the band w w only represented about half of that. But in terms of their own recorded output, I think the second album called The Band, or what people call The Brown Album, uh, was the only top ten album the band had in its lifetime. And they never really had, you know, a huge hit single either. But they were incredibly influential. There were covers of so many of their songs. We all know the Joan Baez version of The Night They Drove Dixie Down. Aretha Franklin covered some of their material. Uh, folk and country artists covered their material um so much more influential than popular in all right. their time all right number three the dylan connection how and where did that begin yeah um some of dylan's people i believe saw robbie playing with the hawks and ronnie hawkins who was a rockabilly legend from arkansas who employed most of the band as his backup band. And somebody in Dylan's camp saw Robbie Robertson uh, playing some club shows because Dylan knew of Ronnie Hawkins, was impressed with his ability as a guitarist, and Dylan getting ready to go electric uh, thought that Robertson would be a great musical foil for him and achieve that kind of 
electric sound that he wanted at the Newport Folk Festival, although Robertson didn't play in that band, but he did play on Dylan's first electric uh, electric tour when uh, Dylan outraged all the folky purists by using amplifiers and kind of turning from folky to rock and roller. And there was something about the tone and sound of Robertson's guitar that Dylan and his people thought would be perfect. And so on the hot, uh, on the, the Dylan electric tour of 65 and 66, and then later a European tour, um, that was one of the most famous in rock and roll. Uh, he's backed by the Hawks, uh, which would then eventually become the band with Robbie Robertson as sort of his musical director. All right. So where did so Robbie Robertson met Danko and met uh, Garth uh, Hudson, whatever, uh, and met uh, Helm? He met them through the band down in Arkansas, Hawkins. That's where he met all these guys. Yeah, they they were uh, they were essentially Ronnie Hawkins' uh, backing band, this rockabilly legend who played roadhouses and and uh, you know rough bars and small theaters, traveling all over Canada and the United States by station wagon, and you know living from show to show and paycheck to pay- paycheck. Uh, you know they when they filmed The Last Waltz, that was 1976, they had had about a 10-year career as the band, but for about five years prior to that, they had toured and sort of paid their dues as Ronnie Hawkins' backing band, then known as The Hawks. All right, and then Dylan Nair, too. Um, Did they play, I know they played some of these festivals, let's do the three big ones, Monterey, Woodstock, Altamont, how many did they play? Uh, Woodstock only of those three. They did not play Monterey Pop. They did not play Altamont, uh, but they did play Woodstock, and they also played in 1973 what was, and I think probably remains, the record holder for the most uh, uh, attended concert in the history of the U.S., which is Watkins Glen uh, near the famous racetrack in upstate New York. Um, That was three bands the dead, the almonds, and the band, and that attracted more than 600,000 people in 1973. Didn't have the cultural significance of some of those other shows you mentioned because it was only three bands, but it did attract almost two-thirds of a million people. All right, the connection with Gordon. They also played the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969 with Dylan, which was Dylan's really only... Uh, live performance between the motorcycle accident in 66 and his comeback tour in 74, uh, by which time the band were his official backing band as the band. That was how the 1974 Dylan tour, which was huge at the time, uh, literally attracted millions of mail order ticket orders. It was Bob Dylan and the band in 1974, kind of eight years apart. Wow, so they were that big that they could open up for Dylan on a huge tour in 1974, all yeah, right? not just um, open up. Actually, Chris, you know, served as his band. Uh, they were his band as he played his material. And then uh, it, it wasn't an opening act scenario. Uh, they would come out, Dylan would play uh, six, eight, ten of his songs with the backing of the band. Dylan would leave for about a half hour. The band would play... Uh, 
uh, five, six, eight of their own songs, and then Dylan would come back for the second half of the show, and the band would return to being his supporting band. Wow, they did that? Wow, wow, wow. I didn't realize that. All right, now, the Robertson, well, let's do first a dead relationship with Garcia. Sounds like the band and the Grateful Dead were tight. How about that? Let me hear. Yeah, I I mean, I think from, um, they, they shared kind of an ethos, uh, they were definitely into that Americana sound, as the dead were. I think the dead were a little more psychedelic, obviously, especially in their early days. Um, uh, they they did not really have a lot of, uh, you know, they didn't work together a whole lot, but they were, I think, simpatico enough in 1973 that they were put on that same bill, along with the Almonds at Watkins Glen, uh, to my knowledge, there wasn't a whole lot of recording together or guesting on each other's, but I, 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 I think they shared that, you know, some of the same audience of that back to back to roots uh, transformation that that started taking over in rock and roll in the late 60s. You had the psychedelic bands um, and, you know, what the band did and what they offered was a return to basics. It wasn't, they, they were not uh, big showy performers. Uh, they had four different singers in their band, which was highly unusual at the time. Uh, they recorded in, a, uh, in the basement of a house that they rented in Saugerties, New York, uh, and where they produced, along with Dylan, the basement tapes and their first two albums. Um, but beyond being paired on some bills, uh, no real working relationship with the dead other than, I think, a healthy respect that existed between the two bands. Sean McAdam, an expert on this stuff. All right, why did all of a sudden they, well, tell us about the last waltz and why that uh was the breakup of the band from an original concept when they first got together. I know they did tours later on, but it sounds like that was it, Last Waltz. How come they stopped? I guess people blaming Robertson and Scorsese did it. Give me the thoughts behind his process, picking the band to do that. Let me hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it was Robbie's decision to effectively take the band off the road in 1976. Um, Famously... In The Last Waltz, he refers to touring and being on the road as they had been doing for about 15 years then as a, quote, goddamn impossible way of life. That's how Robbie Robertson uh, summarized the life of a touring band. And by then, a number of guys in the band had developed some pretty bad drug habits. And Robertson just thought, you know what, this is going to end badly. It's time to bring this to an end. Let's have a big party in San Francisco. Let's invite people who have been friends of ours along the way, who have been mentors to us, who, uh, who influenced us and later played with us, and everybody from Paul Butterfield to Van Morrison to Bob Dylan to Neil Young to Joni Mitchell to Eric Clapton. I mean, it, it is one of the more uh, incredible slates of musical talent in the rock and roll era that appeared in that. And Scorsese thought it would be a, a fitting summing up of that era and was interested enough in their music and their story to be the director. And that started what became... Uh, a 45-year working relationship between Scorsese and Robbie Robertson. Uh, They would famously 
pull up in Scorsese's Beverly Hills home. Uh, they would pull the shades down. They would darken the rooms. Uh, Scorsese had at his uh, uh, at his access copies of prints of all the great movies, and he began to sort of mentor Robertson about the history of film, and they would have these marathon viewing sessions where they watched classic films and Scorsese would tell him about the intricacies of filmmaking. For a while, it looked like Robertson, after he broke up the band or at least left the band, uh, was going to have an, an acting career. He, he does a very good job in a movie called Carney, um, in which he's one of the co-leads, and he later had a supporting role in a movie that Sean Penn stared, uh, starred in uh, as the crossing guard. Um, but later, he and Scorsese uh, worked together on soundtracks, and most of Scorsese's movies from 1980 forward, including the one that is going to come out later this year and is, and is being anticipated as one of the big movie events of 2023, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is Scorsese's latest, was scored by Robertson. I mean, he did everything from Casino to Raging Bull to Wolf of Wall Street to The Irishman, um, Color of Money. Those are all scored by Robbie Robertson because of the relationship they formed while doing The Last Waltz. And that's about the killing in Oklahoma, right? The flowers. Yes. Uh, yes, which I've read the book. You gave me the recommendation. I did read that. Um, 1920 or so uh, along that period. Uh, how about the relationship with the band members? It doesn't seem like they all liked each other. Sounds like that uh, Helm, the drummer, the singer, couldn't stand him. And basically maybe uh, Robertson had to get a... Uh, a, a hall pass to visit him on his deathbed with throat cancer, uh, that maybe he took all the royalties, him and his agent, Grossman. Doesn't sound like it ended well with the band and they all couldn't stand him. Is that true? Let me hear. Uh, that, that's mostly true, Chris. It was an ugly end. Uh, Robertson was the one who um, instigated the, the winding down of that first period of their career. I think the others would have happily continued on. Uh, the fact that they lost their songwriting muse because Robertson wrote about 80% of the band's catalog uh, through the first uh, five or six studio albums when they were really at the height of their artistic achievement and all those great songs up on Cripple Creek, The Weight, Shape on Man, The Night They Drove Dixie Down. Uh, those are all Robbie Robertson uh, compositions later uh, Levon Helm wrote a autobiography in which there was scathing criticism of Robertson saying that he took songwriting royalties he shouldn't. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever adjudicated that to say who was accurate, who was right, who was wrong, but it was a pretty ugly falling out, especially between Robertson and Levon Helm. I don't think it was quite as acrimonious uh, with uh, Richard Manuel, Rick Danko, and Garth Hudson, but certainly Helm and Robertson didn't speak for decades. Um, in Robertson's telling, they uh, they they had a, a coming together moment on uh, on Levon's deathbed. There are others in Levon's family who say that too is revisionist history. Yeah, it, yeah. There, there's no sugarcoating it. It was ugly. Uh, for much of the last 30 or so years, at least with Levon and to a lesser degree 
uh, the three others. Now although, we have to blame we have to blame Robertson on that. He's at fault. I, I think there's a lot of he said she said there, Chris, and and frankly, um, there are there have been some people who uh, who said that uh, uh, Helms' accusations were not founded in fact, and that he was bitter over losing a lot of money, having gone through it with a drug habit and uh, some other misguided actions, and he decided to make Robertson the guy to blame. Uh, you know, unless we're in the room, we don't know the real story, but we do know that it was an, a very acrimonious ending for the two. All right. Are we going to hear from Dylan? Is this the sort of passing that will inspire Bob, who never says anything, to at least come up with a statement, a Twitter thing? Will he feel moved enough to have a paragraph or two on Robertson? Let me hear about that. I'd be shocked if he didn't. Uh, you know, they, they are... Um, you know, Robertson was uh, a huge part of some critical time in Dylan's career. Uh, he appears on Blonde on Blonde, which many regard as one of Dylan's two or three best albums. Um, he, he was the engine of the band that backed Dylan on some of his biggest tours, 65, 66, both U.S. and Europe. And then his great comeback tour in 74, uh, they remained pretty close throughout the years, although they didn't work together much after 74. I'd be shocked if there weren't some statement in recognition by Dylan soon. All right. Are there any other band members alive? Helms passed away. Now Robertson, how about the other three? Are they still alive? The only surviving member as of today, Chris, is now Garth Hudson, um, who um, uh, I don't think is in great health, uh, but is still alive. Um both Richard Manuel and Rick Danko died quite some time ago. And uh, Levon, of course, uh, maybe, you know, seven or eight, ten years ago, and now Robbie Robertson today. So Garth Hudson is the lone survivor of the original band lineup. And, in fact, that recording of Atlantic City that you played coming into our conversation uh, took part after Robertson left the band, and he had nothing to do with that recording. Oh, he did not. Okay, I learned something there. Now, how many albums between 61 and 76, and I'm not including greatest hits, how many albums did they produce in that period of time? Six studio albums, um, one of which was a covers album of sort of a lot of the music that they grew up on called Moondog Matinee. It was all R&B uh, covers that they learned uh, learning the ropes and playing all those clubs. Um, other than that, there were uh, six studio albums, four beginning with the uh, music from Big Pink, their debut. The second one was, um, was the band or the Brown album. Those are the two best and the two biggest. And then Cahoots and Shape I'm In, uh, and Shape I'm In I think, uh, is the other of the first four. Then Moondog Matinee, the covers album, and then the, uh, they did um, Northern Light, Southern Cross, uh, which was really their last great album with Robertson contributing. And that, uh, if you're looking for something for Eddie to play out at the end, It Makes No Difference is the song off Northern Lights and Southern Cross. That we will is, play. Which is just one of the most heartbreaking love songs you'll ever hear. Uh, with a with a vocal from Richard Manuel in there, and one of Robertson's great songwriting achievements. 
uh, after they broke up, they had a contractual obligation to their record company capital and put out an album called Islands, which was kind of a bunch of outtakes and demos that were sitting around and almost doesn't count as part of the canon, but officially is. So four, five, six studio albums, six studio albums of originals, one album of covers and a great, even before we get to uh, uh, the Last Waltz soundtrack, a great live album uh, called Rock of Ages, which was recorded on New Year's Eve uh, in New York in 1971 at um, the Academy of Music, as it was then called. That's a great live album in which they have a horn section at their disposal and is really a terrific listen. Will this be, will this death be a New York Times front page tomorrow, Obit, or not? Mm, uh, Certainly a below the fold if it makes the front page. I'm going to guess no, but certainly, you know, leading the art section and a huge obituary inside. I don't know that it necessarily um, rises to the level of of an A1, but uh, certainly it will be prominently placed in, in art sections of newspapers across the country. But the bottom line is, and this is the most important thing, and this is obviously retiring in 76, essentially. I mean, most of us, I was 15 years old, so I mean, I was 16. And you were not, you were younger than me, and you're such a musical expert, you can answer these questions. Well, I'm, I'm three weeks younger than you, Chris. Three weeks. Uh, yeah, let's not exaggerate. Let's not exaggerate. But the, uh, the, thing I, the two things I wanted to get to, forgetting popularity, which is part of greatness, this yep. band, from a standpoint of influence, and historical relevance relevance is one of the all-time bands in the history of rock and roll. You have no problem saying that. No problem whatsoever, and I'll give you a couple of snapshots to to, to back up my point. Uh, Eric Clapton visited them at Big Pink in, I believe, 68, maybe early 69, and essentially, you know, in between spots of uh, his, his... uh, time in the Yardbirds, his time in John Mayall's Blues Breakers, his time in Cream, and I think probably right before Blind Faith was formed, Clapton nakedly asked the band if he could join them. Uh, that's how impressed he was with their their musicality, with their culture, with their influence, with their complete um, disregard for star-making and front men and flashiness. They were all about the music. Clapton was sick of the business, sick of the egos, and begged them to let him join the band at the height of his creative powers. And the other is, is about that same time George Harrison visited them in Woodstock and in returning as the uh, as they were getting ready to record the White Album and then later uh, both Let It Be and Abbey Road, you can see if you go back and watch get the Get Back documentary that Harrison several times uh, talks about how impressed he was watching the band and that the Beatles should aim for that kind of musical cohesion. Can't say any better than that. If you have a Beatles saying they are better than us, is what you're telling me? Well, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Let's not overstate it. I'm not saying that that he was saying they were better than the Beatles, but he was heavily influenced by 
watching them record how they interacted with one another and how they went about the business of recording and their great emphasis on, you know, on doing it right musically and not letting egos get in the way. He thought the, the Beatles would do well to adapt uh, that kind of uh, approach and just was blown away by how great the musicianship was in that band. And it's true, if you watch The Last Waltz and do any research on the band, you see that, uh, that, as I said, uh, they all sang except Robertson. Uh, They, uh, there were, uh, even though Helm was the drummer, there were times when Richard Manuel would drum. Uh, They they changed instruments all the time. Uh, They were among the most, pure musical bands that you'll ever see because of their versatility and musicianship. Unbelievable, phenomenal job. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, Sean. Thanks for the update. Appreciate it today. My my pleasure, Chris. Always good to be on with you. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.